Last week, we looked very briefly at the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Remember, uh, John said, I baptize you with water, but the one is coming, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And we looked at the different facets of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. Uh, we looked at the, the with, uh, prior to our conversion, prior to our coming to Christ, how the Holy Spirit just kind of bugs us. Yeah, that's deep theological word, but he does. He just kind of gets, I remember that time where he, I was just, I sensed my lack and, and just had this emptiness and I, I knew I needed more, but I just wasn't sure how to get a hold of God. And, and so there was that with. And then there's the in, my conversion, the moment that I receive Christ, the moment I repent of sin and uh, give my life to him, he comes in and he begins to set up housekeeping in that sense. And, and he begins to change us from the inside out. And, and we don't, I mean, all he does ask us to do is to show up, to participate with the work he wants to do. Uh, I was talking to somebody this week and I, I, <laughs> I had to laugh uh, a pastor friend in California uh, had told his congregation last week, he said, you know, you don't want to try to clean the fish before you catch them. <laughs> and I thought, what a great saying that is. Because so often we can look out there at the world and say, man, look at that person. They're over there doing that. And they're over do doing this. And man, man, those dirty sinners there. You know, we can get all this, get caught up in sort of a spiritual pride or self-righteousness. And truly, you're trying to clean the fish before you catch them. And what happens with the Holy Spirit is we give our lives to him. And as he comes in and he begins to invade our souls, that he becomes the dominant force in our life, not flesh, not sin, not Adam's nature, but his nature coming into us, we begin to change. And I remember before I became a Christian, my parents helped this guy move to the Bay Area because he's going to seminary. He'd, he, he'd been an alcoholic and hanging out at the bars and doing all this crazy stuff that people do in the world. And all of a sudden, this guy was like flying really straight. <laughs> and I was just a kid. I had no idea, but I knew there was a profound change in this guy. It was because the Holy Spirit had come in, had begun to change him from the inside out. And so there's this with, and then there's the in, and then there's the coming upon of the Holy Spirit. We see that at Pentecost. We saw it in Jesus' baptism where the Holy Spirit came upon him, talked about Nazareth where he said, you know, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and all that. And so now there's this, this baptism of the Holy Spirit for service. It's not because we want to do a Holy Ghost talent show, guys. It's a baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it's a separate experience. It's not something that separates the haves and the have-nots. It's, he says, how much more? If you, being evil, know how to good, give good gifts, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who what? Ask. Ask, and you'll receive. So that's what we looked at last week by brief recap. Today, we're going to look at, or hopefully, Lord willing, going to finish the Gospel of John chapter 1, uh, and we're going to look at verses 35 through 51, which is a simple narrative. Um, Nicholas, could you catch the slide here? Thank you. Uh, it's a simple narrative of Jesus calling his first disciples. Now, this was of great importance to the Apostle John. This is the beginning of the narrative section of the, this book, of this gospel, where John begins to dive into the person and the work of Jesus. And remember, when we did our first study in the Gospel of John, we talked about the theme of this book could be summed up in John chapter 20, verses uh, 30 and 31, I'm sorry, <clears throat> excuse me. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31a, 
it says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He has two purposes in this gospel. One is it's an apologetic. Now, the word apologetic comes from the Greek word apologia. It's where we get the word apologize, but it's not John's purpose here to apologize for Jesus. That's not what's being said at all. What an apologetic is, it's a spoken or written defense of a position or an action. That's the broad definition, but it's an apologetic. So as we look at this, he says, they're written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He's giving evidences or proofs of Jesus being the one with whom we have to do. The second we see in this, in the same verse, and that in believing you may have life in his name, is this an evangelistic message. So John wants to lay out an apologetic He wants to lay out uh, this defense for the gospel, the defense for who Jesus is and what he's about. And he also wants to see that that leads people, there's a purpose in an apologetic, that it leads people to conversion to Christ, to evangelism is is part part and parcel of what that is. Now, the field of apologetics, there's a Christian area of study called apologetics, and it's simply giving reasons for faith. Now, yes, Part of apologetics is identifying bad doctrine. And, and that's very, very true. But there's also another part that is identifying good doctrine and using that as a tool. Uh, Peter talks about, uh, in First Peter, go on, uh, Nicholas, could you go to the next one? Oh, I'm sorry, I have a couple of slides here. Uh, why are you looking at a bunch of stairs? <laughs> well, I'll show you. Oh, go ahead, Nicholas. <laughs> I went to Rome. I want to just share with you guys. When I was in Rome, I went up to the Forum on Palatine Hill. And that is where the Caesar, where the emperor lived. It was where he kept the headquarters. It would be like going to the White House or going to the Capitol in, in Washington. The equivalent for the Roman Empire is that up at the Forum on Palatine Hill, it was the center of government. Now, what would happen up here is the lawyers would come for people that were accused. This is where, and perhaps these very steps, I'm not sure exactly, but this is part of the Forum. Uh, This is where the Apostle Paul and where Peter were both executed. Uh, Paul was kept in the Mamertine prison, which is just off to the side. It's up on Palatine Hill as well. I've been in there very dark, damp cell, solid rock, kind of circular. They, at that time, the Tiber River came in. And they had a big hole in the top and a hole in the bottom. And what they would generally do is mass executions in there where they would pile all these guys that were condemned to death into the Mamertine prison, into this cell. It was probably not quite as big as this room. And then they would just channel the river into the top hole and fill the place up with water and drown all of the guys. That's how they executed them. And then they would unstop the bottom and wash them out into the river. It was a terrible place. And that's where the Apostle Paul was held in Rome and where the Apostle Peter was held in Rome, where Peter was executed by being crucified upside down, uh, and church history tells us, and where Paul was beheaded up on the steps of the forum. So what would happen is the lawyers would go up under these, they, they did, uh, their trials were out in public. 
and they would try these prisoners before the judge, and lawyers would go up to argue their case. They would go up to make a defense for the criminals or for the people that had been accused. They were giving an apologia. That's the Greek word, uh, making a defense. So what would happen then is they would hire these guys. They would hire commoners to sit on the steps down below where everything was going on, and they would pay them to sit there all day until their case came up on the docket. And when they began to argue their case, the, the people that they had hired, whenever they made a good point, they would, these guys would shout, yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. And they would try to bolster their employer's case. What they did in the meantime, next slide, Nicholas, was this. I, when I was up there, I'm, I'm up there uh, and I'm looking at these steps and I start seeing all of these little divots carved in, in little patterns carved into the steps. And so I asked someone, uh, I wasn't part of, I was there by myself, I, uh, but I asked a tour guide and it, I kind of tagged on <laughs> and asked this gal about it. And she said, well, that's what the people would do when they were waiting for the judge, the people that had been hired by the lawyers, was they would sit there and do the equivalent of board games. And they did these for so long that they wore divots in the steps of the forum. And when I was looking at that, I thought about this passage here in Peter, where, where Peter says uh, to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. In 1 Peter 3.15, which is the most quoted apologetic book, uh, verse in the Bible. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And I thought about this verse standing there looking at these little divots in the rock. And I thought, these guys had to be ready as soon as their case came up to give a defense to the lawyer who was giving a defense to bolster his case. And I thought that's kind of like what the Lord does with us. He wants us to simply be ready. That doesn't mean we sit around and play board games all day. But these guys, they couldn't go anywhere, so they sat and played games. Stacy and I were in Israel, northern, actually in the West Bank. There's a, a city called Beth Shean up there, and I saw the same pattern there. And I thought, well, that's interesting. These guys actually carved rocks for board games. And what it was was for them to wait and to be ready at a moment's notice when it was the, the proper time to speak up. And that's what the, God, what the Lord, what God presses us into doing as we share our faith. It's to be ready, to be ready to give reasons for faith. And a, a, an apologetic is a reasoned defense for our faith. And so that's what we look at with John here. He has two points of emphasis. One is it's an apologetic. He's giving reasons, and we'll see that as we go along this morning. And two is it's evangelistic in nature. Evangelism includes apologetics. And, and you don't have to know the big fancy words, but you have to be equipped, and we should be equipped, to give a, a reasoned explanation for the hope that lies within us. So as we go along, I want you to look for that in the text this morning. Uh, he simply provides evidences and proofs that Jesus is Messiah, or that's the, the Hebrew term, or the Greek is the Christ, it means the anointed one, either one, either word, they're interchangeable, that he's the son of God and the son of man. We'll see that at the end here this morning. So let's read together verses 35 to 51. It says, again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. This is John the Baptist. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, the lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Jesus. 
And then Jesus turned and seeing them following said to them, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated, teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and see. They came and they saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Verse 43, the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, a city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. So Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and he said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed of whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now that's a lot of ground to cover. As I said, it's, it's basically introducing now the disciples. John the Baptist will fade off of the scene at this point. He shows up briefly in chapter 3 of this gospel. But essentially his job was to hand these people off to Jesus. And that was what we've seen him consistently do as we've looked at these sections here dealing with John the Baptist. And even now, these guys him saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what he was doing, was he was simply handing these guys off. So we'll look here at the first, the first this, this section can be divided into two groups of disciples. The first group is John and Andrew and Peter. Uh, they're at Bethany beyond the Jordan. Remember, we looked at Bethany beyond the Jordan. We'll see it a little bit later. Uh, and it's sort of down out in the wilderness. Uh, and I mean, rocks and that's it. Uh, out in the wilderness on the east side of the Jordan River where John was baptizing. And they're still there. That's the scene here where this takes place. And in verse 35, he says, the next day John stood with two of his disciples and said, uh, and looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. It's interesting to note here, we've already covered that in depth a couple of weeks back when we looked at verse 29, where John says exactly the same thing. Uh, and, and God doesn't waste words. Under the anointing of the Spirit, he wants us to be very certain that this is the Lamb of God. This is the sacrificial Lamb. That Jesus is the one who has come to take away the sins of the world. But the, the problem was, is the people were not, except for the few faithful who were looking for Messiah, who sort of the lights were going on, the people were not looking for a lamb. They were looking for a king. They wanted someone to throw off Rome. Uh, they didn't want a lamb. They didn't want a savior. 
That's why John's baptism was so important because John's baptism, remember, it was a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And repentance, if you remember, is simply I'm cruising down the highway, I'm going this way, I'm headed this direction, and I've got, you know, a lot of energy going the direction I'm going. And it simply means you slam on the brakes. I mean, the lights come on, you slam on the brakes, you throw that thing into a four-wheel slide, and you go back the other way. That's repentance. It means to turn. And it means I, my whole mindset has been geared this way. The Lord comes in, the lights come on. I realize, man, I've been heading the wrong direction and I need to make adjustments in my life. Folks, we talked about the beauty of repentance in our lives to staying current with the Lord, staying current with one another because you know what? Relationships are hard. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. I mean, relationships can be difficult. We're different. We're, we're so different from one another. My wife and I, one time we were at a mini storage and I was unpacking a box and I, I was looking for a picture frame and I kept unraveling all these papers and throwing them off to the side and we got all done and I found the frame I wanted. So I stuck all the picture fra- pictures back in the box and I left this big old pile of newsprint paper sitting off to the side. She just looking at me and shaking her head. And I looked back up at her and I said, what? <laughs> And she just said, somehow it works. And, and I thought, you know, we are so different. And yet, the Lord has provided this beautiful avenue for us to be able to express ourselves individually, but also in, in our marriages, in our families, at our jobs, here in the body. I, I, you know, I've, I've really emphasize what it is when the world looks in. We want them to see people that are different. We want them to see people that are driven, that are motivated by the love of God. We don't want them to see wrangling and carrying on and jockeying for position, all that stuff. That, yeah, keep Check that at the door because it's beautiful what God wants to do in our hearts. So John's repentance was this repentance of, uh, uh, or was his baptism was a, a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins to prepare a people for Messiah. Verse 37, the two disciples that heard him speak and they followed Jesus and Jesus turned and seeing them following said to them, what do you seek? I think that's an interesting comment. He's saying essentially, what do you want? And he's not being rude. He's just cutting to the chase. Something that's interesting about this is Jesus sees them following. Maybe they were following from a distance. I don't think they were like right behind him or if he stopped, they'd bump into him. I think they were probably lagging back a little bit, trying to figure out, you know, how do we approach this guy? Because think about the conversations that would have been taking place, guys. You know, John says that Jesus did many more things that, I mean, the books of the world could, just couldn't contain all the things that he did. So you know that there's a lot going on all the time in the background that's not recorded in the narrative for us. And we have to be careful because if we stray too far into interpretation, we can get some wacky ideas. But think about the conversations that would have been taking place. Here they are. There's this great group of people gathered. John is baptizing and, and, baptizing, and then Jesus comes up and Jesus is baptized. The Holy Spirit descends. And John is saying, he's the one. He's the one I've been talking about. He's the one I've been telling you from the Old Testament scriptures. He is the one. I now have to decrease and I have to push him forward and I pull back. And I want you guys that have been following me now to follow him. See, and the conversations would have been intense. And so these guys wanting to talk to Jesus, they had more to say than a casual conversation at the side of the road was going to allow. So 
they approach him and he meets them halfway. He comes to them and he says, what do you want, guys? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is translated teacher, where are you staying? So he says, what do you want? And they said, well, we want not a what, but a who. We want you. Where are you going? Where are you staying? Now, when they call him teacher, it's a salutation of deep respect. And in Israel, if you were a disciple, you tagged on to, when you tagged on to a rabbi, you were basically calling him your rabbi, your teacher. And so the immediately, again, in separating off from, these were John's disciples. And they immediately identify him as greater, which was the whole intent. And they say, where are you staying? Rabbi, teacher. Uh, it, it was assigning not just a title, but it was assigning great respect to him and, and identifying him as the one they wanted to teach them. And so when they, when they approach him in this way, they're saying, we have to talk to you. We need to get a lot of blanks filled in. There is a lot of unanswered questions rolling around in our minds because nothing like this has ever happened before. And we know somehow, some way that this is utterly important. And these guys couldn't have known at that time that their lives were about to change forever. Their lives were about to be elevated in one sense and brought low in another. Elevated in the sense that there they are, they're about to be main players in the stage called Christianity that even now, 2,000 years later, we're talking about them and many people do, thousands and millions of people do, and yet they would be brought low in another because 11 of the 12 not counting Judas, he was the son of perdition, the son of hell, but the Apostle Paul included 11 of the 12 would die violent deaths for their testimony of this Jesus that these guys are just now about to meet. So Jesus says to them, come and see, and, and it says that they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. Now we know by the narrative here that one of these guys is Andrew, Peter's brother, but we also can conclude, it doesn't tell us who the other disciple is, but I believe it was the, the, the apostle John, that John, as he's writing this, one of the things that's distinct about this gospel, guys, is that John doesn't identify himself openly here. When he refers to himself further on in the gospel, more than once he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And, and I used to think, yeah, well, I'm writing the gospel. I'll just call myself the one that Jesus loved, you know. And I thought that was kind of hilarious because it's like, it's my gospel. I could call myself that if I want. But I don't think that was his intention. I think his intention was very much along the lines of what John the Baptist had been promoting. And that was to go low, to, to put himself out of the limelight so that Jesus would be elevated. And so, and in doing that, he doesn't even identify himself here. It's a logical conclusion that John is the second disciple that was standing with John the Baptist, the Apostle John, the disciple John, and with Andrew as they went along. One of the things that's indicated here is that John is writing this many, many years down the road, and he remembers what time of day it was. He says it was about the 10th hour. Now, if you guys remember, remember we talked about Jewish days not too long ago. How many? Okay, what time is it? Test. Four o'clock. Uh, Dan, you get a donut. <laughs> 
Good. About four in the afternoon, if it's the 10th hour, remember Jewish days are spread into 12 equal parts. And so the 10th hour would be four in the afternoon. So it's late in the day. I would not be surprised when we get to heaven and we find out more detail about what happened and what transpired here. I would not be surprised if these guys were up all night with Jesus. I can only imagine, we can only imagine the conversations and and as Jesus illuminated who he was and what he was about to these guys, when they got up the next morning, they were excited. They were really excited, so much so that their actions are immediately impacted by what had transpired in their time with Jesus. Something that's worth saying here, too, uh, we see, well, there are seven, but there are five in this account, five disciples. Uh, We see John, we see Peter, we see Philip, we see Nathaniel, and we see Andrew. These guys are all fishermen from Galilee, from the the northern part of Israel, and we'll look at that in a bit. They're all from very close to the same area. Some of them are all from the same town, but they're from Bethsaida and Capernaum, and and they were a very short amount of of distance apart. One was from Cana. We'll talk about that briefly, but, but the point is these were regular guys. They were just regular Joes. They were just normal, everyday fishermen. They were not, you know, scholars. They were not Jewish, you know, muckety mucks. (laughs) They were normal, everyday people. And one of the things that the Lord loves to do is to use normal, everyday people. Uh, I think about this. And in Acts chapter 4, you don't have to turn there. It says... In verse 13, it says, um, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. This is when um, Peter and John were before the count, they were before the Sanhedrin. And, and they had been hauled in there because of their testimony of Jesus. And the Sanhedrin were like, wow, these guys are speaking with authority. But they're not educated. They're not even trained. Wow. And so what did they do? They conferred and they decided, well, uh, we'll just tell them you can't talk about Jesus anymore. Yeah, right. Like, that's going to help. <laughs> that's essentially paraphrase what they said. Yeah, right. They said, you know what? If this stuff's true, you're not going to shut our mouths. You will not stop this from going forward. But the point is they were uneducated. They were untrained. And in 1 Corinthians, here's just another passage that talks about this, this commonality of the gospel going to the common man. And that doesn't mean that if you're an executive or you, you are highly educated or anything like that, that you're either in a better or worse position. It's just not about that. It's just not about that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, 26 to 27, um, the Apostle Paul says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame or to confound the wise. Why would God call ordinary fishermen to do this most powerful, to, to help to carry out the most powerful message that humanity has ever had delivered? So he would get the glory. He uses the foolish things of the world. Uh, Amen to that when I look in the mirror. I'm serious. 
He uses the foolish things of the world to confound, to shame the wise. He uses the ordinary to, to, to accomplish the extraordinary. He uses the common to, to do the uncommon. He uses the lowly to achieve high things. All of it because he's a jealous God and he will not share his glory with another. He uses those things. He uses common people so that he is lifted up and nobody can say, wow, that guy's really smart or he's really gifted or he's really this or he's really that or really educated, whatever it is. And that's why he was able to get in and do the things that he did. No, it's all the spirit of God working through the people of God by the word of God to accomplish the will of God. And that's what he still does. He's not looking for ability, guys. He's looking for availability. He simply wants available vessels. Lord, take me, use me. I don't care how. And you know, uh, just a sidelight, spiritual gifts. I've seen the charts. I've filled them out. You know, identify your spiritual gifts. You're 19. You're da, 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 da. You know, all of that stuff. And they're fun to fill out. It's fun to kind of look and say, well, you know, Lord, have you gifted me? What are base gifts that I have? But you want to know something? When you make yourself available for God to radically use, radically, Pastor John? I don't know if I want to radically be used. Yeah, radically. You say, Lord, whatever. I, my life's a blank check. You fill it in. When you make yourself available, you'll be amazed at the things he will do because he always gifts with the call. We talked about that briefly last week. You don't have to look for his calling in areas you know you're gifted. Why? Because he, if he calls you and he presses you to serve in a particular way, you've got a burning passion in your heart for one thing or another. And, and then you see him begin to produce fruit through that. It's because he is gifting you as you go. So he gets the glory. See how, see, I mean, it's beautiful the way God does it because he does it in such a way, I've mentioned before, we are not, we were not created. We do not contain glory. We are not equipped to do that. The minute I try to take a little bit of that glory, I start thinking a lot higher of myself than I ought to think. Be careful. Something else about giftedness, you'll probably notice, and I've seen many, many times in my years as a pastor that areas where people tend to become most critical of others oh look at the way they're doing that they're really messing that up is where they're gifted the areas where you are gifted the areas that you are strong in can become the areas where you are most critical of others guard your hearts because God will put you on the shelf for that. I've been put on the shelf before. It's no fun. Truly, let him work through you. Let him work in you and then work through you as he accomplishes the work that he wants to do. Don't worry about whether or not you're gifted for that particular thing. See if there's a passion. See if there's a drive. See if there's an inner prompting. That, and, and if it's from the Lord, he'll bring it to about. He'll bring it to pass. You don't have to worry about the, the gifts because he'll equip you as you go.
Verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we've found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. Interesting, Andrew is the first guy in the Bible to conclude uh, who, what Jesus' identity was. Uh, this is the first objective eyewitness testimony also in the Gospel of John. There are three in this passage. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Cephas is the Aramaic word for Peter, the Greek word, Petros. And both of them mean stone. You could look at, you'd see the same thing happening here where Jesus tells him again at Caesarea Philippi, not here in the backside of the Jordan River, but later on in Matthew 16, he has similar dialogue with Peter because there they are right against the big rock face at the base of Mount Hermon. And, and Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And Jesus said, or Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, on this rock, I will build my church on the testimony of what you just said, on your statement, you are the Christ. I will build my church. And he says, you are little stone, Petros. Petra is a foundational stone on this foundational truth that I will build my church. And there's a great interaction there if you want to check that out later. Uh, but anyway, Peter gets named here by Jesus and he gets renamed. And so uh, it's interesting that Peter comes onto the scene here as a result of his little brother, Andrew. Uh, and if you notice in the text, something that's repeated a lot is whenever you see Andrew referred to, it's always Andrew Peter's brother. I, you know, I have three older brothers. <laughs> and I was either Jim's brother or or Bill's brother, or Dave's brother. You know, it wasn't like John. And, and I, I understand that. But it was because Peter would cast a pretty large shadow over these guys. He would go on to become a prominent person in the church. He would be the, the head apostle at the church in Jerusalem. And, and he, I mean, he would be the main apostle to the Jews, Paul being the main apostle to the Gentiles. I mean, he would be greatly used. But something I love about Andrew is Andrew never minded. He never minded. You never see any place in the scripture where he takes issue with being second place. Because he's a humble guy. And he loves the Lord. And it's his testimony of Jesus stands on its own. So we get now to the second group where we talk about Philip and Nathaniel in verses 43 to 51. Interesting, this whole section in the Gospel of John is, is dealing with the first week in the ministry of Jesus. The first day uh, was John the Baptist saying, here comes the Messiah. Remember, we looked at that where he says, the one who is coming, I'm not even uh, worthy to loosen his sandal. The second day, is where John the Baptist actually introduces Jesus. He says, there he is. The third day was where John and Andrew and Peter follow him. Now we're at the fourth day. It says the following day in verse 43. And this is where they go off to Galilee. Now, go ahead and, and advance it if you would, Nicholas. Oops, wrong one. Never mind. Uh, Oh, I put it in another place? All right, never mind. 
I added a couple slides this morning, and um, I was tired, so I guess I put them in the wrong spot. Anyway, no big deal. But the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. He just went to Philip, and he said, follow me. Now, here's Galilee here. All right, if you look, there's Bethsaida on the top of the lake there, off to the right. It's actually up off the shoreline a ways. Uh, Capernaum is to the left there on the Sea of Galilee as well. Now, if you go down, sort of to the southwest, you see Nazareth there inland in the mountains. And then draw kind of a, di a, a, a triangle. Cana of Galilee is up in the, the top left. We're going to be there next, uh, next week. So when Jesus does his first miracle at a wedding in Cana. What happened was Jesus, when he stood up in the synagogue in Nazareth and he proclaimed out of Luke 4.18 there, we talked about that last week, where he said, today the scripture is fulfilled in your presence. And he was thrown out of town. So he moved his ministry at that point to Capernaum. And he stayed in Capernaum. When he went to Galilee, he generally went to Capernaum. The fishermen were from Bethsaida originally, and they came down, Peter and Andrew, and I believe John, uh, they, they were in Bethsaida, and they came down to Capernaum. They relocated their business there because uh, James and John and Peter all had thriving fishing businesses. And so just so you get a flow for where we're at, we were in the southern part of the country. This is way up in the northern part of the country in the Galilee region. So when Jesus wants to go to Galilee, Israel is a very small nation. You can go ahead and go back. Um, it's a very small nation. These guys could walk. It would be a healthy walk, uh, probably a 15-hour walk or so. They could do it in one day if they really hustled. And uh, to go from the, the backside of the Jordan River to travel up the Jordan Rift and on into the Sea of Galilee. So uh, not that big of an area. I know uh, one of the things that I think Netanyahu was talking about last year when they wanted to reduce Israel's borders to the 1967 line to where the West Bank came under Palestinian control, solely under Palestinian control, uh, was that it would only be like, what was it, 9 or 11 miles wide. A very narrow strip. It's a long, narrow country, and it's not very long. It's, it's, it's actually about the size of the county that we came from in Northern California, Shasta County. was about the same size. Not a point of reference for you, but everybody understood it there. But <laughs> the point is, uh, it's not a very big area. So he found Philip and he said to him, follow me. And Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, uh, up where we looked at on the map. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, Nathanael, interesting guy, uh, he's referred to as Nathaniel here in the Gospel of John. In the other three Gospels, you see, I, I believe that it, he doesn't show up there, but the apostle or the disciple Bartholomew doesn't show up here. And I believe that, that Nathaniel had two names. These guys frequently had like Cephas and Peter, you know, and, and they frequently had two names. They had a, a sort of a surname. And, and Bartholomew would be, Bar means son of Tholomew or, or, or son of Talmai is how it would literally be tr uh, translated. So I believe that Nathaniel and Bartholomew are interchangeable. And again, that's up for grabs. You can conclude whatever you'd want. It doesn't really, it's not going to, you know, you're not going to lose your salvation one way or the other. So <laughs> don't worry about that. But when we see Nathaniel show up here, he's, he's also, he was from Cana. 
And when he says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? I don't know what that means other than maybe it was a local thing that the people in Cana looked down on the people from Nazareth. They were just to the north a little bit and they were from the same area. Uh, and, and so Nathaniel evidently has a bias about Nazareth. And so uh, it, the interesting thing here too is, is that Jesus is in that group of people that are not notorious in, in a good way. He has no notoriety. Jesus was very careful to not even identify himself as far as Messiah goes. He never called attention to himself until he was anointed for public ministry. He was the carpenter's son. That was it. That's the only thing we know. We, we see one instance where he was studying at the temple. Remember with the caravan headed back to Nazareth after they went to the, the feast and his parents lost him and they went back and, they, and he said, well, where else would I be? Wouldn't you know I'm about my father's business? That's the only thing you see in Jesus's childhood. He was not uh, noted. He wasn't prominent in any way until this time, until he was anointed by the Holy Spirit, by God himself, by the Father, to carry out his public ministry. And so when Nathaniel says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? He's basically saying, really? Common guy? Common sort of a low-end blue-collar neighborhood? We might look at it that way. Any, really, the Messiah coming out of Nazareth? I would think he would come out of Jerusalem or, you know, come out of Rome or come out of, you know, some highfalutin place. But this backwater town up in Galilee, come on, the Messiah? And that's essentially what's being said here. And so in verse 46, Philip says to him, he says, come and see. You want to know if anything good can come out of Nazareth? Well, let me just give you a little bit of instruction. Just come and see. Let's check him out. In verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit or no guile, this is remarkable because Jesus looks at Nathaniel and he sees right through him. He sees right into his heart. He reads his heart here. We look at the, the wedding in Cana of Galilee as the first miracle. This is definitely a supernatural event going on here. Uh, yeah, that's a major miracle. But Jesus looking right into this man's soul, right into his heart and saying, you know what? Here's a true Israelite. Here's a guy that is, he's not sly, he's not cunning, he's not working it. Well, he's a what you see is what you get kind of guy. And I pray that that would be something that marks my life. I pray that our lives are marked by simply being people that have no guile. We don't have an agenda. We're not trying to work it. We're not trying to motivate or manipulate people as far as the kingdom of God goes. I, I have known preachers that do that. I've seen Christians that do that. And it's sickening. We're relying upon the Holy Spirit's work and that's it. And he calls us to a life of love. He calls us to a life of integrity and, and to simply be people that, you know, the old saying, my word is my bond. I don't need a contract. If I tell you I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. You know, if, if I tell you I love you, it's because I love you. It's not because I want something from you. You know what I mean? And he sees, in the thing, he sees this quality about him just coming up to him. And Nathaniel's response is interesting. He says, Nathaniel in verse 48, he says, how do you know me? Uh, that's, and I, you know, in, inserted here, well, that's kind of weird, Jesus. <laughs> 
<laughs> How do you know anything about me? You just met me. Then Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Fig trees in Israel are interesting. When I was, uh, I went up to this place called the, the Cave of Adullam. I don't know if you remember King Saul chasing uh, David and all. They, they hid in Adullam's cave. Went in there, had a Bible study inside the cave one time. And, and right outside, is a, it used to be a vineyard hundreds and thousands of years ago, whatever it was. Um, but there was still a big fig tree off in the corner. And it was probably a newer fig tree. But uh, one of the things that I came to understand was, you know how at an office we have a break room, right? And in an agrarian society, they didn't have offices, but they had a break room. And it was under the fig tree. Because why? Fig trees put this huge canopy of shade. It's hot in Israel. I mean, it's warm. It's very much like Southern California in the climate. Sort of Mediterranean climate in, in Southern Cal as there is here. And, and it's hot. And so what these guys would do when they were out working in the fields, when they would stop, they would go stand under the fig tree. Or if they were traveling and they wanted to take a break, they would stand under the fig tree because it was shade. And so Jesus says, Nathaniel, what do you mean, how do I know you? I saw you under the fig tree. Long before you came into sight, by the way, Luke chapter 8 and Hebrews 4 talk about there is nothing about our lives that is hidden from God's sight. Nothing. That he will bring everything hidden to the light. And there have been times where I read that and I go, oh Lord, I want to fly right. <laughs> Seriously. Because he sees it all. He sees it all. And he's saying to, to Nathaniel here, he's saying, I see you on the inside and I see you on the outside. I see the whole thing, Nathaniel. I, I see that you're an Israelite in whom there's no guile, no deceit. I also see when you're standing under the fig tree before I even got there. And Nathaniel's response, in verse 49, answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. He gets excited because he realizes that what is going on here is something that no man, no regular man could ever disclose to him. And Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. So, what Nathaniel is doing is he's seeing Jesus' omniscience, okay? One of the attributes of God is he's omniscient, all-knowing, okay? You, the omnis, there's omnipresence, he's all-present. That doesn't mean he's like, um, like in that rock or that spare tire, you know? Not that, that's weird. Um, <laughs> now, there are people in New Age thought, you know, it's like the, the harmonic energy is like everywhere. It's just, yeah, I could all get off on that and just <laughs> giggle the rest of the time because it's so silly. But he is all present. And, and, and he is omnipotent. He is all powerful. And he is omniscient. He is all knowing. And so Nathaniel sees the omniscience of Jesus. Jesus demonstrates it here to him. But Jesus knows that that is what's driven him to faith. That's what's driven this profession. Again, another confession of who Jesus is. An eyewitness account in that sense. But Jesus also knows it won't be enough. That as time goes on, 
that Nathaniel, as all of his disciples, you and I included, would be pressed and there would be temptation to cut and run. And he said, you know what? You're going to see greater things than this. You're saying that because I saw you standing under a tree and because I told you about yourself before you had a chance to open your mouth. But I'm, I'm telling you, there will be greater things than these that you will see because your faith needs to be fully developed. Uh, he says, uh, w- because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? That's that Greek word pistuo again. Um, the, the, the word believe is used 98 or 99 times in this one gospel. And it's a verb, guys. It's not an adjective. It's not a noun. If you, okay, back to high school English. A verb denotes action. And it's the kind of belief that produces action. It's the kind of belief, it's faith that, not faith in faith or faith in, you know, whatever. But it's faith, the object of my faith is all important. And he's saying, because I showed you yourself, and I, I, I told you where I saw you under the tree, do you believe, it, is that producing action? I'm telling you, there will be more required of you and your faith will need to be fully developed in order for that to come about. 98, 99 times this verb, this action word, believe, takes place because it's faith that produces action. James says, you show me your faith, I'll show you my works because it's, he had a good understanding that faith produces action. Does that mean we're saved by works? No, absolutely not. Ephesians 2, we're saved by grace, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. Oh, I'll take some glory. We talked about that a few minutes ago. No, he says, you know, you can't do that. You're saved utterly by grace and that's it. But we are saved unto good works. That's part of radical faith is that I am so sold out for Jesus that I I just can't wait for God to use me and I really don't care how he wants to use me. If I, I'll tell you what, I was scrubbing the floor of a Nazarene church, this is 30 years ago, and I was down on my hands and knees in this Nazarene church that we borrowed for our children's ministry. And I was just scrubbing the floor and I, I was happy doing it. I was just filled with the joy of the Lord. And God spoke to my heart. And the impression, the strong impression I had, I mean, I started crying. Was John, I am as happy as delighted in this with you as I am Billy Graham filling football stadiums. And I started to weep. Why? So it's not about what. It's about my heart. It's about, it always goes back to the heart. And, and I don't care how you serve. I mean, I do. But, I mean, seriously, I don't care. It doesn't matter how we serve, it's are we serving the Lord? And effective service always flows from relationship. Don't get that backwards, guys. You want to serve the Lord, make sure that you're, you're in it and just you're walking with him, that you're walking, you've stepped over that line and you're all in. It doesn't mean you don't sin or you have problems or you goof up. You know, we're all, yeah, not going to go there. But the point is, Let that faith, that active verb, faith, produce works. Let it produce action in your life. It produced action here, and this was just the beginning. Verse 51, and he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven opened 
and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. What on earth does that mean? These guys knew Moses. They knew the Old Covenant. And in Genesis 28, we see Jacob's ladder. It's a story of Jacob's ladder where Jacob goes to sleep. He has a dream and God confirms the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant he made with his, with his grandfather, Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, remember the, the fathers of Israel. And he, when he said, I will bless you, I will multiply you as, as far as the sand on the seashore and through you, the nations, every name, every person on earth will be blessed. And what he's saying is that ladder, Nathaniel, I am the ladder. I'm the only way that you're going to be able to get to heaven. And angels, it says back in Genesis that, that angels are ascending and descending on this ladder when God confirms the covenant. And Jesus is essentially saying, I'm the fulfillment of that. I'm the fulfillment of that. And I, I would imagine he was further blown away than he already was when he heard Jesus say that. It says, in your seed, and you and your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Interesting, Jesus refers to himself as the, son of, as the son of man here. I would love to take the time, but we are out of time. Uh, and go to Daniel chapter 7. Because there Daniel gets this full-blown vision yet to be fulfilled of one coming like the son of man who will rule and reign humanity. And Jesus, will, and he's, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Generally, you see Son of God, it's deity. Son of Man, it's humanity. We've talked about that. You can kind of break it down that way. But there's more to the Son of Man statement that we'll go into probably the next time we run across it because I don't have the time now. But prophetically, Jesus is saying, uh, this is the, the fulfillment of what Abraham was spoken to about what was guaranteed through Jacob, his grandson. And it's also the fulfillment of what uh, Daniel was shown back in the Babylonian Empire, back in the book of Daniel, that he was the fulfillment, the prophetic fulfillment of all that was prophesied, that here he was, now on the scene, beginning to carry out this work that was set before him to carry out. John's purpose in this section is he wants to bring eyewitness testimony. Remember, we talked about an apologetic. The verse 41 the first testimony through Andrew. We have found the Messiah. Verse 45, the second testimony through Philip. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Verse 49, the third eyewitness, first person testimony of Jesus here through Nathaniel. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. John is systematically, yes, this is, it's a very simple narrative. It's a very simple accounting of the first disciples being called, but there is a lot going on in John's heart as he's writing this stuff down. He wants to be sure that the apologetic is in place. But he also doesn't want it to be without the evangelistic aspect. The religious leaders, by contrast, resented Jesus. They didn't like the fact that he was threatening their power base. Coming out of the gate, up there questioning John the Baptist, what are you doing here? They resisted Jesus. 
they would not come off of their gig. They would not come out of their own thing. I mean, with, with some exceptions. We'll look at that when we look at Nicodemus in chapter 3. But they resisted him. And they rebelled against him. But these common guys, these blue-collar guys, these everyday Joes, they embraced him. And their lives were forever changed. It really comes down to this as we close. I'll just pose a question out of the, the narrative from this morning. What are you seeking? What do you want? What are you looking for? Are you looking for, full, for fulfillment? In a career? Are, are, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I mean, ultimately, what are you looking for? When Jesus calls us to radical faith, when he calls us to radical discipleship, he tells these guys, follow me. That's what he said. He said, he just walks up to the guy and he says, follow me. And they stopped what they were doing. Look at the other gospels. He says, follow me. Those guys left the nets. And I'm not saying we quit our jobs and we just go and, and all that. I'm, you know, we have, a, we have a completely different culture. But it's an attitude of the heart. It's an attitude of the heart. What do you want? What is going to fulfill you? Those are good. I mean, a, having a good job is good and it's fulfilling. Having a good marriage is good. I want a great marriage and that's good. It's fulfilling. Having a great family life is great. Having good body life is wonderful. But all of those things are lesser fulfillments than the ultimate fulfillment we get through walking by His Spirit as we carry out our lives in this crazy, messed up, upside down, fallen world. What I want is very simple. One word. Jesus. Jesus. And yeah, that means a lot. But you know, uh, I've got a whole lot, and like many of you, I've got a whole lot more days behind me than I do in front of me. And I just want them to count for Jesus. I want to be found in him. I want to be found faithful. I want to be found loving him. I want to be found loving his people. I want to be found being effective for him in establishing and furthering his kingdom in this messed up place. I want to be found being a light for people because it's dark out there, guys. It's dark and it's getting darker. So what do you want? What has first priority? And I submit to you, brothers and sisters, if it's anything but Jesus, you need to kick that off the throne and put him where he needs to be. Let's pray. Father, oh, Lord, just get excited at looking at these things and seeing how beautifully your word links together, how beautifully you express yourself, your desires for your people, for your church, for us individually and corporately as a body. I lift up this body to you. I pray for each of us, Lord, that you would work in our hearts, that you would excite us, about the things of your kingdom, that we would simply want you and to be clay in the potter's hands. Mold us, shape us, 
work with us. Use us, Father. I pray for anyone here who's struggling, Lord. I pray that the issues of this life as they press in, that we would be in a place of rolling them off onto you. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who drives these things into our hearts. And we thank you, God, that you love us the way you do. We pray now as we go out and as we prepare our hearts for the holiday ahead and perhaps time with family and friends, that we could be a light unto them, that we would be useful to you, and that we could simply love with a love that this world does not have. We yield ourselves afresh to you and to your power working in us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. God bless you. The Lord keep you. Bless you. Give you peace this week.